as well. And for the rest of you, sixth grade and up, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 to 26 this morning. That's James, chapter 2. Thank you so much, worship team. So blessed and encouraged by that time. Worship together this morning. Sometimes, uh, People ask me, like, who aren't a part of our church, they find out I'm a pastor. They ask, like, well, what kind of worship do you have at your church? Do you have traditional worship? Do you have contemporary worship? What, you know, is a mix? And I, I never really know how to answer that necessarily other than just, like, we try to sing songs that communicate the truth of the gospel and uh, give us hope for eternity. And that, whether those songs were written a long, long time ago or whether those songs were written... Um, very recently, whether those songs are written by a part of our member of our church, it doesn't matter. We want to sing those kinds of songs, and uh, and we'd be open to an electric guitar player. I think we just don't have any in our church that I know of. So if you play electric guitar, we'd love for you to join the worship team. But uh, it's always I, I pray and trust that you're encouraged by our times of worship uh, every week. I know I look forward to that. Uh, basically, by by Monday, I'm always looking forward to being back worshiping with you on Sunday. Like I said, we're in James chapter two, uh, finishing James chapter two this morning. Uh, so before we begin, let's ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, God, um, thank you for Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ had not been raised, and if our hope is in this life only, then we as followers of Jesus are the most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised. And now because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future. Lord, sometimes it's a scary future. Sometimes it's an uncertain future. Sometimes we wake up and we think there's no way we can face the day. But because Jesus lives... We have everything that we need in this life and the next. And so we thank you. We ask that you would, again, just draw our hearts to that hope this morning, the hope that we have in eternity, that Jesus holds the future. The present may seem uncertain sometimes, but Jesus holds the future, sure. Praise you for that, God. We thank you. We ask that as we look to your word, you would edify us and encourage us in it. As we talk about this interplay between faith and works and what real faith really looks like, God, show us in our own hearts where our faith is lacking. Give us a firmer foundation, a firmer faith in the firm foundation, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the uh, second week of our little two-week mini-series here on this interplay between faith and works called Real Faith. And last week, we began this passage by looking at the question of whether or not the Apostle Paul and James disagree on if it's faith that saves you or if it's your works that save you. And on the surface, upon first glance, it certainly appears... Like they disagree with each other. The Apostle Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not by works. He says it's pretty explicit. It's not by works. And James says, faith without works is useless, making it seem like actually it kind of is by works. So we ask the question, do they disagree? And the answer is no. They're in complete agreement with one another. If you missed the sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to it. 
But the main point is that the key to understanding their agreement with one another is to see that Paul and James are addressing two different groups of people. So when Paul is adamant that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, he's right. The reason he stresses that in his writing, that it's by grace, it's through faith, it has nothing to do with works. The reason that Paul stresses that is because he's writing to a group of people who are tempted to lean on their works for salvation, to try to earn their way into heaven. He says you can't do that. It's impossible. Your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There's no way for you to earn your way into salvation by your works. And he's 100% right about that. But on the other hand, when James says faith without works is dead, he's also right because he's addressing a different group of people. You see, James is addressing a group of people who are tempted to presume on the grace of God and to claim that they believe in Jesus when they don't have actually any real faith at all, no faith of any substance. It's just words. It's fake faith. And so for us to understand as we study the book of James what he's saying, we need to recognize that he's not answering the question, how do I get saved? How do I get saved? It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He's not answering that question. He's answering the question, how do I know that I have been saved? See, that's a different question. What's the evidence of my salvation? How can I really know that I've been saved? And the answer, which we see not only in James's writing, but in Paul's writing as well, and the Gospels, is that true faith will always, always, always produce fruit. True faith will always produce fruit. And so, what we said last week is we need to understand this passage as kind of a warning to us because if you find yourself callous to your sin, cold to the needs of others, comfortable living for yourself rather than for God, James says that kind of faith isn't true faith at all. You're callous to your sin. You're cold to the needs of others. You're comfortable living for your own kingdom. That's not real faith. That's meaningless. That's worthless. That has just about as much worth, like we said last week, as me putting on a Captain America costume and thinking that I'm going to somehow save the world. There's no substance behind it. It's just words. And he says it's meaningless. So that was last week. And this week, James concludes this kind of section on faith and works by giving us three different examples of faith in action. And so we're going to actually, with our time this morning, we're going to look at these three examples. So we're, we're going to be kind of glancing off of James into different parts of the Bible this morning. It's going to be a little different. We're going to see that James gives these three different examples so we can see what it looks like to have real faith. That's where we're heading this morning. Three examples. And the first is actually not a positive example, but it's a negative example. And it comes from a pretty unlikely source of an example of faith, but it's actually the demons. So we're going to be looking at what the faith of the demons looks like. So look with me at verse 18 in James chapter 2. It says this, But someone will say, You have faith. And I have works. Now, what James is doing here is kind of this is a pretty common rhetorical technique back then, which is that uh, you would set up the argument of somebody who disagrees with you and then knock it right over. So that's what James is doing. He's like building up this imaginary opponent. He says, Someone will say, You have faith, I have works. 
It's just kind of this and that. Meaning, some people say you can separate the two. Some people have faith. Some people have works. What's the big deal? Some people are theological eggheads. eggheads. They just want to study, 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 learn, learn, learn. And they have faith. They don't really have works to show for it, but they got faith, you know. They know a lot. Other people, they don't really care about learning or studying. They just, you know, they're more practical. They just want to do a lot of things to help people. What's the matter? You can separate. Some have faith, some have works, tomato, tomato, right? That's what James is saying. What's the big deal? And James says, well, it is a big deal. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. Like, okay, you think you can do that? You think you can separate it? Prove it. Show me the substance of what your faith looks like apart from something that you do. You can't, he says. Show me your faith apart from your works. It's impossible. He says, and I will show you my faith by my works. This goes right along with what we talked about last week. You want to see what true faith looks like? It looks like the overflow of a life living out the implications of those faith in love and concern for other people. You show me your faith apart from your works, I will show you my faith by my works. Then he says this, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. You believe that God is one. What's he talking about here? That that three-word phrase, God is one, he actually chose that very intentionally. See, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and this Jewish audience would have uh, grown up every night, probably before bed or something, I don't know, but they would have recited this. It's called the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's just kind of something that as a part of growing up Jewish, they would have recited this. So it's a very common personal thing to them. He says, you believe that. You believe that the Lord your God is one. He's the one and only true God. He says, you're right. You do well. That's good. But it's not enough, he says. This is where he kind of really plays the trump card here. Look what he says next. He says, even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Whew. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You know what? Actually, he's probably insinuating that, because he's talking to people who claim to have faith. Their lives don't, don't show any evidence of that. He's actually probably insinuating that the demons are one step ahead of these people, because at least they have a work. It's shuddering. It's being afraid. But at least it's something. At least the faith like produces something in them. You guys got nothing is kind of how I read that, what he's saying there. He says, even the demons believe. Now, this is not something we think about very often. Demons have spot-on theology. Like, uh, you probably couldn't beat a demon in a Bible trivia question I don't, or contest. I don't know if, like, what weird devil went down to Georgia scenario you would get yourself into for that to happen. But you probably couldn't. God's enemies know who Jesus is. We actually see this illustrated in Matthew chapter 8. And so as we, if you want to, as we go along here, if you want to keep a finger in James and turn with me to these other uh, portions of scripture, you can, but we'll also have, when we go to another section of scripture, we'll have it on your screen so you can do that as well. But we see this illustration of just how much the demons know in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus, the story, when Jesus casts out demons into a herd of pigs. So look at it with me. 
Matthew 8, starting in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, talking about Jesus, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So they have this kind of demonic power that's so terrifying that no person can pass by them. Verse 29, behold, they cried out. Listen to what they said. When they see Jesus, they cry out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? O Son of God. So what did they know? First, they knew his position. They knew he was the Son of God. The disciples are still trying to work this out. They don't get this right for a long time. But the demons knew. What have you, as soon as they see Jesus, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They knew his position. Moving on, they asked, have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. They know his position and they know his plan. Before the time. What are they talking about? They're talking about the end of time. They're talking about the time when Jesus will be victorious, when the demons will be judged and cast into hell forever. They're saying it's not that time yet. Are you here to torment us before that inevitably happens? They know it. They know the end. So the demons know his position. They know his plan. And then moving on. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, cast us away into the herd of pigs. These demons who have power, that men are afraid to go near them, they know that Jesus can just cast them out with a word. So they know Jesus' power. They know he had complete and total authority over them. That it was useless to put up a fight. If he wanted to cast them out, he could. All they could do was like to be begged. They beg him to send him into a send him into a herd of hogs. And so that's what Jesus did. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Go. Just with a word, I love that. Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea drowned in the waters. The demons knew Jesus' position, his plan, and his power. I got to admit, I was on a roll with alliteration this week, so just, just be prepared for that. They knew his position, his plan, and his power, and yet they were not saved. Why? Well, the lesson here is that knowledge isn't enough. Real faith is more than knowledge alone. Knowledge on its own, when it comes to salvation, is a necessary yet insufficient cause for salvation. What's that mean? It's necessary. No one who doesn't know the name of Jesus will be saved. You need to know the name of Jesus to be saved. That's why missions is so important, because there's millions of people all over the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, because no one's told them, and so we need to send people to tell them. You need the knowledge, but the knowledge on its own is not enough. What's missing? Another P word. Their posture. The demons weren't worshipers. Their knowledge of who Jesus was as the Son of God who was going to defeat them in the end and had a power to cast them out with just speaking a word, go. 
That knowledge had not led to a heart posture of submission to that authority. And the same can be true of us. Right? James is saying you can't separate faith and works. It's not enough to just know it, to just be able to recite the right answers. The demons can recite the right answers, but their faith isn't real. It's not enough to just know that Jesus is Lord. You have to submit to Jesus as Lord. And for some of us, it's tempting to just rest in that knowledge of Jesus without submitting to him. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge is good. Don't go home, hey, what would you take away from the sermon? Pastor Mike said that we don't really need to know anything about Jesus. No, I did not say that. <laughs> Knowledge is good. If you don't desire knowledge of Jesus, that's a different problem entirely. But what James is saying is that it's not enough. Knowledge on its own can't save. Even the demons believe and they shudder as a result. So yes, believe in Jesus. And then let that belief drive you to a heart position of worship. So that's the first example that we see of faith and the demons and the takeaway is that real faith is more than just knowledge alone. Here's the second faith. This is one that's an example of faith. This is one that's maybe more expected. It's the example of Abraham. So turn back to James chapter 2, verse 20. Let's see what he has to say about Abraham. He's saying the demons believe and they shudder. And if that wasn't enough, he says, verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, James was allowed to call people who disagreed with him foolish. I wouldn't recommend that necessarily. For you kids, you get in an argument with your brother. Do not be calling him a foolish person. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, you person who believes that foolish thing, that you can have faith without works? All right, I'm going to call a witness to the stand. It's like a courtroom. I'm going to call my first witness, Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. So he's saying it's not that he didn't have faith, he only had works. He had his faith that was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So nowhere is he saying that faith is not important. See, to understand what he's saying, the argument he's making, we need to understand what was happening in the life of Abraham. See, he kind of makes just brief mention of things, but we really need to, to know what's happening to really get what James is, is getting at here. And so he says this, there was a scripture that was fulfilled in Abraham. He's talking about Genesis 15, 6. So it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham believe the Lord about? Well, it's something actually very specific that is happening that he believed the Lord about in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you are going to have a great reward. Abraham, an old man without any kids at this point, kind of pushes back and says, how's that going to happen? I don't have any kids. I don't have any descendants. How am I going to have a great reward? It's impossible. And God says, Abraham, hey, 
let's, uh, let's step outside for a second. Why don't you look up? You see those stars in the sky, Abraham? Can you count them? No. Guess what? Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. Now, as an old childless man married to an old childless woman, that would be hard to believe, would it not? And yet, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the faith. So what James is doing is he's saying that Abraham had faith, and then that faith was tested in the cauldron and came out with evidence shown by his works. What kind of test did Abraham have to go through? Well, first of all, there were 30 years between Abraham believing God's promise that he would have descendants greater than the stars, and that promise actually coming true. And guess what? In those 30 years, believe it or not, Abraham and Sarah did not get any younger 30 years went by, and then they finally have a son, and they name him Isaac. And they celebrate because God's promise has finally come true. But that wasn't enough testing of Abraham's faith for God. God had another test in mind, a test that is honestly unthinkable. We're going to take a look at it. So Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has had a son. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Excuse me? What, God? Um, God, did you forget that you said I was going to have a whole bunch of descendants and this seems like my best option for that. I uh, think you might be forgetting the promise you gave me. What in the world? What does Abraham do? Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He obeys. First of all, I think it's um, pretty smart of Abraham. He doesn't run any of this by Sarah. That's probably a good idea. I don't know if she, how keen she would have been on this idea. He obeys. He cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. Catch this. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again. You. Now, this is actually an area where I don't love the ESV translation, which I normally preach out of, because you actually miss something really important that comes through in the Hebrew grammar. And if you have another translation, it, it will actually say something more like, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and it says, and we will come back to you. Meaning both of us. So Abraham, obedient to God, and yet is still sure that he and his son are going to return. How could he have that kind of faith? Well, actually, Hebrews 11 tells us, we don't normally get this in Scripture, Hebrews 11 tells us what Abraham was thinking in that moment. Abraham was thinking, according to Hebrews 11, that God would raise him from the dead. That was what Abraham thought was going to happen, that he was going to actually go through with, with offering his son as a sacrifice, but then God would raise him from the dead. What incredible faith! 
Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, imagine getting this question. As a father, I can't imagine getting this question. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And then look at what Abraham says. This is a verse that I could preach 10 sermons on, but we won't have time this morning. But look at what Abraham says in response. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Amen. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's ready to do it. I don't know what kind of second thoughts are in his head right now at this moment. I don't know what kind of doubts are creeping in. You can imagine, but he raises the knife and he gets ready to sacrifice his son and then... (laughs) This beautiful voice comes through. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know. That's interesting, first of all. Now I know. What do you mean now I know? Doesn't God know everything all the time? Why did God need to see this in order to know something? God knows the future, he knows the past, he knows the present. I don't know, I think maybe it's just written kind of from our perspective, how we see it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's easy to say you believe God. It's another thing to do crazy things. God might call you to do and that's the lesson for us that real faith leads to radical action radical action James says it like this in verse 22 you see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works real faith leads to radical action Abraham was justified by faith alone But that faith was proven real in the fire of testing. And it was shown by his works. It made no human sense, but God told him to do it. And he was prepared to do it. And that's the lesson for us this morning. God's calling you to do something. As a result of your faith, guess what? you got to do it. you got to. No matter how crazy it might seem. Some of y'all are living that out right now you got to do it if God is calling you to do it. Now you got to make sure that he's actually calling you to do it. you got to speak to people who are wiser than you. you got to pray a whole lot. But real faith reveals itself in real works. Sometimes it's things that you can't imagine ever doing. 
But if God's calling you to do it, you got to do it. You can uh, use this analogy before, but just again, think about uh, jumping out of an airplane with a parachute. You can say that you believe that the parachute will, uh, will protect you, will save you until you're blue in the face. You can have a PhD in the physics of how parachutes work and why they never fail. And yet, if you're unwilling to jump out of the airplane with the, airplane, with the parachute strapped on your back, then what good is all that knowledge? It's not worth anything. Faith without works is meaningless. Real faith leads to radical action. That's the second example that we see through this amazing example of Abraham. And then James, as we close, gives one more example, and it's the example of Rahab. And I love this because it's almost like he's anticipating people's objections. Yeah, okay, Abraham had great faith, but that's Abraham. He's the patriarch of our faith. Of course he's going to have this faith. But this is little old me you're talking to. How can I be expected to have that kind of faith? And so Abraham uses the example first of the Jewish patriarch, and then he says, okay, here's a second example of unbelievable faith leading to incredible works. How about a Gentile prostitute named Rahab? We'll look at her story right now. Verse 25 of James 2. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Again, her faith proven by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead. It's a story that he's talking about. It comes from Joshua chapter 2. It's the story of Josh and the Big Wall for all you VeggieTales fans or the story of Jericho for you non-VeggieTales people. But Joshua is about to send in spies to scope out Jericho before they go to battle. And so they send in these spies to this enemy territory and they're in a dangerous place. And so what do they do? They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. The word gets out. Verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. The spies, God's men, are in trouble. And if this... uh, prostitute named Rahab rats him out, which is what anyone would be expected to do because if she's found out to be lying, she would lose her life. If she rats them out, then these men will lose their lives. So what does she do? Verse 4, but the woman who had taken the two men and, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. None of this is true. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men went out and they pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now it's interesting, again, we're talking about like incredible demonstrations of faith in Scripture. And it's interesting that Rahab's demonstration of faith was actually that she lied to these men. And that's an ethical question that we'll leave for another time. But the question I'm interested in right now is, why did she do that? Why did she do that? Why did she risk her own life 
to help these men? Well, verse 9 tells us. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Why'd she do it? She believed that God was God. When she believed that God was God, she did this little calculus in her head. What's more dangerous, these men or the God of the universe? And she submitted to the God of the universe because of her incredible faith. Her actions matched her beliefs. And God in his providence gives this Gentile prostitute an opportunity to be used in a powerful way. And you know what? None of that's even the most amazing part. You want to know what the most amazing part is? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, see the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus' ancestors. And you know who's listed as an ancestor to Jesus Christ himself? You know whose name is listed in Matthew chapter 1? Rahab. Rahab. Rahab, who would give birth to Boaz, who would marry Ruth. You remember that story? They gave birth to Obed, who was David's grandpa. Here's the lesson. Real faith works no matter who you are or what you've done. Whether you're a Jewish patriarch or a Gentile prostitute, both demonstrated incredible acts of faith. Because they believed in God, they acted in a way that lived out that belief. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that it works in everyone. Can I get an amen? God can and does work powerfully through everyone who has real faith. This is good news for you, dear brother, dear sister. You might be in here wondering as we talk about the idea of faith and works and how your faith will be in the outworking of your life. You might be sitting here thinking, that's not true of me right now. You wonder, is it too late? I don't have these works. I have been cold to my sin, callous. To the needs of others and comfortable living for myself. That's true of me. You say, is it too late? Dear friend, it is not too late for you. Don't think so lowly of God that he couldn't work, that you think he couldn't work powerfully through you just because of what you've done in your past. You think God's really that weak? That impotent? Not my God. No way. My God is powerful enough to work through a patriarch and a prostitute, and he's powerful enough to work through you too. And this is the good news of the gospel. If you really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he came to the earth as a baby and grew up and lived a sinless life, And died on the cross. An innocent man dying a criminal's death. 
was buried in a tomb, and three days later walked right out of that tomb. If you believe that, you will be saved. And if you really believe that, then God's going to start to do some really cool things in your life. He gives you the power you need to overcome any addiction, any sin. He gives you the power you need to do whatever he's calling you to do, to go through whatever he's calling you to go through, no matter how hard that might be, no matter how impossible the future seems. He'll give you that strength because real faith works. So remember, knowledge is not enough. It's not enough to just say you believe it. Even the demons believe. They know Jesus is the Son of God. But it didn't change their posture. Knowledge isn't enough. Real faith leads to real and radical action, and it works no matter who you are or what you've done, and praise the Lord for that. That's my God. That's what he does. He's powerful. He loves you, and he gives you a faith that works. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. Thank you for your word again, for these examples of faith that we see, the incredible example of Abraham offering his son Isaac to you as a sacrifice, and then you sent the substitute, the ram in the thicket. God, now, because of our sin, we deserve to die. And that knife was coming down. But just at the right time, you sent the substitute. It was none other than your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. So God, help us to live lives that are a powerful testimony to that faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not yet have faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they say to you, yes, I believe. I believe I had no hope. I had no hope that you would own me to you, that you would adopt me as your son or daughter. I had no hope until Jesus came, and he is my only hope. Pray that they would be saved. God, for those of us here who do know your salvation, I pray that our lives would back it up. That this passage in James would be a reminder to us that faith works. Real faith really works. We confess ways that we fall short of this all the time, God, all the time. We confess that. We ask that you'd forgive us give us eyes to see and ears to hear ways you're calling us to live and thank you for your grace we thank you for jesus we pray in his precious name amen